to the fields that I once knew Before I went to seek out skies of bluer blue When will I leave London town? When will my traveling be through? Why is it now the newness seems no longer new? Some spring That was Rod McEwen's song, When Am I Ever Going Home, composed for the 1968-1969 movie entitled Joanna, which is a must-see. And the podcast, beginning with Rod McEwen's When Am I Ever Going Home, 
is entitled, How to Be Popular If You're a Guy. You might call this the pendant to hot dating tips for gals or fresh dating tips for gals, whatever it was a few months ago. And I want to talk about popularity, and especially if you're a guy. Now, let me swim into this theme, or as Three Dog Night would say, circle for a landing, by talking about Rudyard Kipling. Now, Rudyard Kipling is one of my favorite authors, and you'll say, oh, I don't believe this. He's going again to some relatively neglected and obscure, although perhaps quality author that he's now interested in for some odd reason. But there's a method to all this. There's an inner reason why all these um, uh, persons become interesting, because they are, in fact, almost always people who are immensely popular but are regarded by the critics or by the elites, as is often said today, or the establishment, which is another way of putting it, as absolutely being hopeless and just lame and basically idiots to whom, or in relation to whom we should be absolutely pharisaical and say enough and no further. And Rod McEwen would be the classic example of this, although I want to talk about Rudyard Kipling. But before I get into Kipling, and this is not a long podcast because I want to leave room for what we just heard, which was longish, and then the fantastic McEwen music, which is a little shorter at the very end. And, um, uh, McEwen, by the way, do you know how many records he sold? Now, he died uh, in January a year ago, almost exactly one year ago. Do you know how many records he sold? He sold 100 million records. He also sold 60 million copies of his books. Now, this is the kind of information which the collective ego of what is sometimes called the false self, the collective ego of the world, this world, which is passing away but has an enormously high and uh, uh, brittle but impermeable um, uh, wall of uh, collective uh, resistance to its own hegemony, this principality and power known as the collective ego – no one wants you to know that. They do not want you to know that Rod McEwen sold 100 million records and 60 million books. And they also don't want you to know that the period when he sold them is the period when, according to the so-called narrative that we are told everywhere, he had the least possibility of selling them because it was in the late 60s. I saw Joanna during the campus strike of the spring of 1970 when the whole world was falling apart in anti-Vietnam and often violent and nationwide hippie-led and fascinating and really um, extraordinarily fervent demonstrations against what was. And yet there I was sitting in a particular situation watching Joanna, which is sort of, as somebody once said, it's a two-hour movie filled with three hours of Rod McEwen music. It's unbelievable, and it's nothing to do at all. It has a lot to do with sex and sexual freedom, yes. But it has zebra to do, zilch to do with politics. It's actually a very universal, if off the wall, but wonderful movie in its way. But this is not an advertisement. This is an advertisement for what we learn from this. And so we learn, said James Gould Cousins, what do we learn from Rod McEwen, who is universally regarded as despicable? 
despicable because he's it's in bad taste, it's over the top, it's entirely sentimental, dripping with sentiment, and just obnoxious, and yet look what he does. So this is why this uh, um, short podcast is called How to Be Popular. If you're a guy, what was it about Rod McEwen? We'll get back to that. Now, what got me on this, because I've always liked Rod McEwen, although I'm well aware of the... Um, of the obloquy and the uh, extraordinary uh, contempt that is heaped upon his uh, his life's uh, work, Lebenswalk. Um, I'm well aware of it. But what got me on this was actually the following. And, you know, I'm a scholar, but I'll have to let you do the. I just don't have the time in these podcasts, but I'm not lazy. I, I can send you right to the, uh, to the, the citation. I was reading... I've been, Mary and I have been just immersed in the mid to late short stories of Rudyard Kipling, which I regard as um, really, as T.S. Eliot said, works of a man who had a kind of sixth sense. He pierced beyond the veil. He knew things or was given shafts of light from uh, from the one, from God. And uh, that's why his stories uh, taken together are, talk about a tapestry, an overused word, a mosaic, which is an overused word. His stories are a mosaic of divine understanding. Now, what uh, made me think about him was because, of course, we've all grown up on the idea that Kipling was an imperialist, uh, a racist, which he wasn't, an imperialist, which he was, um, and uh, a uh, jingoist for the British Empire and a very much part of establishment notions about colonial rule in India and Africa and so on, <clears throat> much of which is not true. But suffice it to say that what um, pierced the veil for me to make this podcast was actually a review of George Orwell's in which he was reviewing the sort of breakthrough book about Kipling because everybody hated him. I mean, I can't. he was 99% rejected by the literary establishment in England after he died because everybody was on the left and they all just winced at the idea that this man who they associated with sort of the establishment in England, a little bit like Galsworthy but not quite, um, should actually win a Nobel Prize. They just hated it, and he was just totally buried under abuse as being this racist, colonialist, jingoist, imperialist, sort of like Cecil Rhodes or something, when Anyway, uh, that's a whole nother story. And so um, Orwell, after T.S. Eliot uh, wrote a, um, a brilliant essay uh, uh, of, of uh, pre- preceding a collection of um, Kipling's poems, Orwell, of all people, who wrote 1984 and was in great, great good odor and was left-wing but was also the author of 1984, so just take that in, uh, wrote an appreciation, I think in 1942, of Kipling that got everybody surprised. And the, and the longer Orwell survived into this new world, the more he um, he spoke out. He actually, I think, has t- at least two major uh, sort of popular essays concerning uh, Kipling in which he basically praises him while at the same time acknowledging certain defects which were almost he sort of had to do in order for anybody to hear what he had to say. But this is what uh, Orwell had to say about Kipling, and I'm not reading it, but I've, I, I'm giving you the, the gist of it. Um, and this is, remember, how to be popular if you're a guy. McEwen, a hundred million records, 60 million books. Kipling, the most popular and highly quoted literary figure in the English language of the last part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century in this country as well as uh, overseas uh, in England and the empire. Um, 
Orwell said the secret to Kipling is, in fact, the very thing that he is um, detested for by the establishment. Uh, and he used a very odd and politically incorrect word to characterize the literary establishment. You look it up. But this is George Orwell, not Paul Zoll. Orwell said that the secret of Kipling is because he was he was part of the establishment, A, that accounted why he was hated. I mean, he was defending or appeared to be on the side of something that everybody else who fancied themselves an artist or a critic hated. Remember, um, most people who are artists, uh, who, who have strong ideas, become artists to express their anger. I mean, Joseph Stefano pointed that out. He was the architect of uh, of Outer Limits, one of the great shows, and others. He's one of my heroes, Joseph Stefano, kind of a lapsed Catholic, very, very, very liberal and crusading Hollywood figure. He also, I think, wrote the script for Psycho. But I, he may still be alive, but I don't know. But Joseph Stefano said the secret to getting ahead in the literary world is you have to decide what you're angry about and then write from your anger. Always write from your anger. So this would mean that as a result, most people who are persistent in the arts and in the literary arts are people who are writing out of anger. Kipling was not writing out of anger. He was happy to be part of that which he had grown up in, but he was a genius of perception. But Orwell goes on to say, so that explains his sort of uh, identifying with the world of the uh, empire in a way, uh, which is really not strictly true, but it's sort of true. That actually, that not only provided his enemies for what they wanted to completely snowball and avalanche and um, basically want to write him out of existence, which they failed to do because the quality is so good, but secondly, it actually made Kipling's work enduring. Because when you're not fighting a battle against something that your your whole inner being is reacting against or responding to, or, or just fearfully upset over, when you're actually at peace about your sort of context, then you are at liberty to hear universal voices. In other words, Kipling, because he wasn't fighting a lot of secondary and tertiary battles, was able to therefore hear he was able to hear universal themes, and they're listed. They're the relations between men and women at every single stage of male-female relations, um, hope, uh, healing, uh, uh, disease, um, recovering from the fear of death, uh, dealing with a, a, a terminal illness, um, marriage that is fraught with cultural uh, uh, consequences against it, um, the possibility of having hope in the midst of of terrible daily circumstances, the possibility of hearing something, as in his remarkable story, which is called Wireless, hearing something from beyond, the possibility of reincarnation, the possibility of what actually is heaven like, what actually is hell like, what is it actually like to die and then wake up and find out whatever you do find out. He plumbed the depths in his stories. That's why a number of them are ghost stories. Grief, mourning. How do you get over acute, lived-out, practical mourning in your life? The story they, T-H-U-Y. It goes on and on and on. And Orwell's point is that the very thing that the establishment held against Kipling and used against Kipling to destroy his reputation, such that he is unjustly accused of being a kind of jingoist or nationalist for English imperial interests, was actually the thing that artistically and spiritually, philosophically, I guess the word is artistically really, inspirationally, allowed Kipling to hear voices that no one else heard. And that is true. That's the main point that Eliot makes about 
Kipling is that he was open, somehow he was an open vessel to truths and intimations of immortality that make him unique in 19th and early 20th century literature. And Orwell says the same thing. Now let me say one other thing about that and go back to Rod McEwen. This is the secret. It's one of the secrets of Trump's rise. And I'm not saying anything partisan or ideological about Trump. There are two reasons. He, he, is, he is popular. He is going with something that has been and that actually has existed against which an enormous amount of pressure has been exerted to destroy it. And whether you're for that or against it, I'm, whether you're on the left or you're on the right, he is standing up for something that was and therefore he's attracting a tremendous popular Resonance. There are many people, if I live in this world and I'm basically content with my life or there are things about it that I value, whatever arrangements I have, whatever circumstances that I have that I value because they're what I have, I'm going to want them to, the good part of those memories, to stay. And therefore, Trump says, I'm for it. So he becomes extremely popular while at the same time being hated by all the voices that basically don't like that world and would like it to come down and be destroyed. And that's the world of, of, of great much of much of art and much of opinion. That's always been the case. So there's a similarity between um, the popularity, which is extraordinary on the ground in terms of people who say they will vote for him in this man versus the unbelievable attacks. And by the way, those who attack him don't understand the nature of reality or the nature of the human situation. They do not realize that to the extent that they resist him, to that extent he will grow. The people that are most upset, I mean, I can just name a million people that are well-known people that are most upset, they do not understand that what you resist persists. In fact, the law increases the trespass. The more, this is St. Paul, the more they come down on it pharisaically or self-righteously, even if they're right, and they may well be, let's assume they're right, the more it increases, the other increases. So to the extent that there's resistance, to that extent they ensure his continuing and increasing popularity. That's just grace and law. That's Romans 7. Remember, Paul said it three times. If there were no resistance, there would be no thing to, there would be no counterbalance. It's a it's very similar to Newton's law and in the law and the gospel and Pharisaism and self-righteousness. Uh, it's more than an equal reaction. It's an equal and superior reaction. So that explains that. And that explains why uh, Kipling is still popular. I mean, if you go on the website of the Kipling Society, you will not believe the number of people who still read Kipling, even though the, quote, narrative is that Kipling was this awful person. But actually, he heard things. He heard, just read, read, unprofessional, the story unprofessional, or read, as I said, wireless, or read uncovenanted mercies, read on the gate, a tale of 16, read the gardener, as a mockingbird person, read the gardener, read the gardener, read the gardener, read the gardener, and you will be transported into a vision of ultimacy that is beyond words. Now, finally, I want to say, before I get to the last concluding, and to me, matchless uh, thing of McCune. Rod McCune was the same way. You see, he was universally, even at the time, this is not some sort of what smarmy, isn't that the word? Some sort of knowing, what do they say today? Wink, wink, you know, something that we in the year 2015 sort of see through the popularity of McCune. I lived then. 
I was a per, I was there when Rod McCune was popular, and I looked upon him as just the worst. I mean, I, I couldn't believe anybody who would listen to the San Remo strings and Rod McEwen would have just... None of us actually did, you see. We actually didn't listen to it, so that's why we hated it. You know, we did, as Tom Calhoun says, when somebody said, I hate Tim Tebow, and, and somebody said, you know, I don't... I hate him, but I don't know him, but I hate him. Well, well we never even... I never even listened to McCune. I just assumed it was awful. But had I listened, I would have realized the secret. And the secret, this is how to be popular if you're a guy, just like Kipling. McEwen stayed close instinctively for whatever reason. I won't psychoanalyze the man. I don't know enough about it. He stayed close to universal basics. And I'll tell you how you know that. You just heard uh, When Am I Ever Going Home, which is in context of that movie is just just heartbreaking. And I'm going to play for you at the end, Run to Me, Fly to Me, Run to Me, Fly to Me, a love song that he recorded also and uh, recorded and wrote for the same movie, Joanna, which you can get on a British Film Institute. Uh, um, you You have to be able to play British DVDs, but it is so wonderful and so off the wall, that movie. But let me say another thing. Because McEwen didn't care what anybody else think, I don't think he really knew what other people think and thought. And I don't think he really knew these kinds of people. I don't think he knew the kind of people who were the academically prepared or whatever the word is, the, the people who actually ran opinion. He didn't even know them. He just wrote what he wrote. And as a result, there's a kind of off-the-wall weirdness that is profound. There's a song. Look at Peter's theme. Uh, you can look that up. Peter's theme and one one that is called, also from Joanna, and one that is called I'll Catch the Sun with his very odd voice, his very odd, almost croaking, I'll catch the sun and never give it back to you. Uh, or listen to his song, If You if you go, if you Go, Leave Me. I think it's called If You Leave Me. Nikita Pa. It's a song that he didn't write, but look up If You Go. If You Go Away. That's it. If You Go Away. YouTube it. Look up If You Go Away by Rod McEwen, the original recording of it from the same period, 68, 67. Unbelievable. Uh, the song was recorded, I think it's a French, Nukite Pa, Nukite Pa, I think it's a French song, but what the, the core, he's in the womb. He, he's, he's, he's pre, this is, this is, this is a, uh, Anti before he's born. This is a, a an, an in the a fetal position man talking about the death of love and the desertion of uh, the female. That is, uh, in his view, in his feeling. That is, I mean, the song is almost unlistenable. It's so true. So that's why you listen to the song. If you go away, and the song that I'm about to play you, and you will immediately understand, part of you will, your true self, your your real self, looking for love to call my own. That, you know, Jay Giles, you are finding when you hear his music, you are in touch with that person. And that person is so eager to come out and to be known and loved and held that that person is willing to pony up and uh, 60 million copies of this man's books, but much more to the point, 100 million copies of his records. Thank you very much. And here's vintage Rod McEwen. Run to me, fly to me, say cheery bye to me, tell me you love me and then Just when I'm apt to be full of uncertainty 
Never ever. 